Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. With the BC economy, brand new jobs report out from Statistics Canada. Let's check in now with Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs and Economic Recovery. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, I know, you, I know you're going to give me the good news here. Tell me all the good news. Well, uh, you know, there is positive news. Uh, we have one of the strongest recoveries in, in Canada. Uh, 99.4% of jobs back to pre-pandemic levels. And we've had about 10 months of steady uh, job uh, numbers increasing. Uh, of course, it doesn't solve all the problems. We, we still know that folks in uh, hospitality and in, uh, in tourism are still challenged uh, without international travelers here. Um, but some sectors are doing really well and some are still struggling. Okay, what are, are most of these jobs that have come back in British Columbia, are they mostly part-time jobs, or are these like real full-time good-paying jobs, or a lot of it like part-time low-paying jobs? Well, this month we've seen uh, a little bit more pickup in part-time jobs, but over yeah. the last at least four months, we've seen a steady increase in full-time employment. Uh, and so there's been a shift. You know, we saw uh, early on a lot of part-time employment, and then People were starting to transition their employees to full-time, and now we've got some more part-time work come on. And so it go it varies month to month, Mike. Uh, you've been covering yeah. this for years. Uh, but overall, really steady numbers increasing. Majority of the jobs coming back this month were women. Uh, and we know yeah. there was a gap, and we're starting to see a closure in that gap as well. Yeah, but it's mostly part-time, though, right? Like, I mean, it's like the vast majority of the jobs are part-time jobs correct uh, well th- this month the the jobs uh, are there's a higher number in part-time jobs than right. full-time but again yeah. if you look over the recovery uh that's not necessarily the case we've seen a strong recovery in job numbers is uh full-time numbers as well if you look at the average uh, uh wage that has uh, come through the pandemic it's way higher than it was pre-pandemic level because the jobs that were impacted the most uh, in hospitality and retail, uh, they were lower paid jobs. And the jobs we've gained are actually in tech, in manufacturing, in our resource sector, which are higher paid. And so the numbers are slightly uh, higher because of that. Okay, speaking to BC Jobs Minister Ravi Kalon about the latest jobs numbers in the province. Minister, what about the number of jobs in the private sector versus jobs added in the public sector? It seems to me, like taking a quick look at these numbers, that we're seeing a lot of jobs come back that are public sector jobs, like government hiring people back. That, that's worrisome to me. Are, are, what are we seeing in the private sector? I think that's where we need to get the economy going and start adding more jobs. Well, we've been steady in the private sector. Uh, and Mike, as long as we're in a pandemic and we're in the second wave, we're going to continue to see uh, that the numbers are going to be challenged. Until we get the vaccines rolled out, we're not going to see that spring up. And so, uh, you know, I, sh- I don't think you should be concerned whether it's public sector jobs or private sector jobs. These are good paying jobs that are keeping well, people uh, afloat. Well, I think I, we should be concerned because I think the concern is around the economy. And I, I think private sector hiring is a much better indicator of the health of this economy than than the government hiring people. I mean, if you take a look at private sector jobs in the province, I, I think we're almost $80,000 or 80,000 jobs fewer right now than what we had in february last year so i mean we still haven't there's a that's a lot of private sector jobs that have gone away and still have not come back no doubt we have a long way to go but my my point is that we're in a second wave of a pandemic that's that's uh you know really hampered the opportunity for international travelers to come our our restaurants can't be at full capacity and certainly we've got some challenges but overall we're trending in the right direction and uh it means that the the measures we put in for the recovery are, are working, and it's keeping families going. Okay, what about tourism? Tourism really got hammered here. Is it coming back at all? Or are they still? It look. It looks like they're still way down. Well, there's a pent up demand. I mean, everyone I know has got at least one trip in mind that they're uh, looking to do within BC, and so I think once we start seeing more vaccines roll out and 
some of the uh, restrictions start easing, I think there's going to be a huge pickup in, in domestic uh, travel. And, and really, there's actually more opportunities within uh, BC for domestic travel than even with international travelers coming. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that in the coming months, we'll start seeing those numbers pick up. But right now, you're right, uh, they're, they're still struggling. And we don't, you know, I was in Victoria at the legislature last week uh, and not having cruise ships, not seeing tourists. It's, it's really weird in Victoria. Minister, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Cheers. You bet. I, I appreciate that. Is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs, talking about the latest job numbers out this morning from Statistics Canada. The unemployment rate in British Columbia improving 6.9% right now. Uh, the economy in, has increased jobs in February. A lot of them part-time, though, as you heard him describe. Let's get the opposition's reaction here now. On the line, Liberal MLA Todd Stone. He's the Liberal critic for jobs. I'm pleased to welcome him. Todd, thanks for coming on. Uh, good to join you this morning, Mike. Okay, I know you heard my chat with the minister there. What jumps out at you at these job numbers? Well, I, I, you know, look, I, I understand why uh, the minister may be uh, wanting to arrange a, a parade uh, with these numbers this uh, this morning, but the devil is on, is always in the details, and so I would encourage him to, to hit pause on, on uh, the, the excessive backslapping. Uh, as you rightfully pointed out uh, in your segment with him moments ago, uh, most of these monthly job gains uh, were part-time. Uh, in fact, yeah. 84% of the jobs in February, uh, new jobs were part-time. Yeah. Uh, if we go back to, uh, you know, he was, he was incorrect in saying that, uh, that there has been a, you know, a surge in private sector jobs over the course of the last year compared to, to, uh, to, pu- uh, to public uh, the public sector uh, has actually grown since February of 2020, so over the last year, by, by uh, 63,700 positions. I mean, just think about that. Wow. Uh, while the private sector is down 79,000 jobs uh, from where the private sector was one year ago. Uh, so you've wow. seen this, uh, this significant shift uh, from uh, full-time jobs to part-time jobs and a significant shift from uh, um, private okay. sector jobs what to the public sector. What would be your specific concern there with the growth in, in government jobs? I mean, you know, some people in the public sector were laid off too, and a lot of them have been hired back. But is your concern about, what, government spending or debt? What, what's your concern there? Well, they're, they're simply, simply put, there, there cannot be a, a, a full-fledged, sustainable uh, economic recovery uh, over the long term without a robust private sector uh, jobs uh, component to that. Uh, the, yeah. the private sector has to lead the way. Um, it, you know, t- tourism is, is still down, uh, you know, tens of thousands of jobs. I think at 52,000 uh, to be specific. Is that the government's fault, though? Well, uh, uh, no, uh, the borders are closed. Uh, that, that obviously has an impact. But look, uh, we've been calling for a jobs plan. Uh, it, it's time to start uh, you know, walking and chewing gum here, so to speak. Uh, obviously, we'll continue to support the provincial health officer and the public health efforts and keep people safe. We're, uh, we're all hoping for a, a rapid vaccination program and so forth. But we've got to start uh, seeing this government spend more time focusing on a sector-by-sector jobs plan okay. uh, to, to help the, uh, in, those industries that are, that are really ailing. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about BC's economic recovery. Jobs numbers are out this morning from Statistics Canada. The unemployment rate in British Columbia going down 6.9%. It was 8%. So that's a fairly significant drop. Employment is up in the province. 27,000 jobs added in February. That's a 1% increase in jobs in the province. Now, all this sounds great, but as you heard, we broke it down there with the minister responsible. The large majority of these jobs added are part-time jobs. A lot of them are public sector jobs. These are government jobs and largely, you know, the private sector got a lot of catching up to do here 604-280-9898 phone me with your thoughts on that and tell me how you're feeling out there with this economy 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell todd stone still with me he's the liberal critic for jobs i mean if the government was here todd stone i'm I'm sure they would say they do have a jobs plan and the jobs are coming back and what are you talking about there's no plan well, there's there's no plan whatsoever. Uh, what are you What are you looking for? What precisely do you want to see? Well, a, a sector by sector strategy. You know, a plan mean, uh, means you have to have targets. You have to have specific actions that you're implementing over a period uh, over a timeline, and you have to measure against those results. Uh, where the government has gone out on a few rare occasions to solicit input from industry, for example, tourism. 
uh, they get back a tourism task force report, and and they've only acted on three of the, the task force recommendations. Uh, you know, we're we're calling specifically for tourism that the government def, uh, defer uh, or or provide some relief on on a number of fixed costs that the industry continues to face. Um, you know, as one as one example, um, there, there's one other factor I wanted to to re- uh, highlight to Mike as well. Sure. The yeah. um, it's called hidden unemployment in the StatCan numbers. Um, this is the number of, of uh, the total unemployment rate that includes uh, the unemployment number that, uh, that, that the minister was talking about. And all of those people who um, uh, have given up looking for work and those people who uh, may be in a job but are getting far fewer hours, uh, far fewer shifts. Um, when you factor all that together, uh, we're sitting here with a with a, a, a hidden unemployment rate of about 11.2 percent, which is up significantly from the beginning of the pandemic. So, and, and it makes uh, it makes sense when you when you think about that. Restaurants, for example, um, you know, the restaurant industry has said they they have a lot of quote unquote zombie positions where they've been able to keep their employees engaged uh, only because of federal wage subsidy programs. But a lot of those employees aren't getting any shifts, but or they're getting a dramatic reduction in the number of hours. Right. Um, so again, uh, the devil's in the details here on these, uh, on these okay. jobs numbers. And I think it's far too early to celebrate. La- last question for you. Do you have any concerns about unsustainable spending or debt or deficits? I mean, I'm looking at the federal numbers earlier. I mean, BC's got these uh, huge deficits as well. It- it's almost like any idea of balancing the budget or has just gone out the window and it just seems like just spend away. It doesn't really matter how much we spend or how big the deficits get. Well, absolutely, and and this is why uh, you know just yesterday in question period, um, you know we we asked the question. I mean, how dare us? Uh, we asked the, the the premier the question, um, what the heck is this additional thirteen billion dollars that I've uh, asked the legislature to approve in the supply bill? Um, with there's, there's absolutely no details, and and you know it got it, it's so far so cool that the the thirteen billion is apparently attached to the to the twenty twenty budget that was brought in a year ago which only weeks after it was introduced, the premier said was totally irrelevant because of the pandemic. Um, so yeah. we, don't, we don't even have a full accounting on, on program spending uh, for the $5 billion that was approved a year ago, the $2 billion that was approved in December, let okay. alone uh, this blank check for another $13 billion of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, of cash that the premier wants without okay. telling us what he, what he wants it for. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much, Mike. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Todd Stone, Liberal MLA. He is the Liberal Jobs Critic. Let's fit in a few phone calls here. Chris and Langley. Chris, thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's been a while. Uh, just curious, like, off of what he was just saying there, didn't uh, the government in the first kind of uh, wave of this pandemic uh, throw a bunch of money, stimulus money, into into the economy for businesses to help them get back on track? Yeah, or are sure. they still holding on to that? I know sure, they were talking sure about they did. Yeah, yeah, sure, so, sure they did. You know, one of it's been bungled. Like, there's a small business recovery grant program that was kind of botched and delayed, and the government says that they're getting it back on track, uh, but there are still calls to streamline it. Like, to me, it's just extraordinary the amount of money that's just blown out the door here at the federal and the provincial level. The deficits are just astronomical, and it just seems like it's a permanent spend mode. Well, you're, so. you, you got a grid, and, that, and that's kind of the point I'm going at is, is that yeah. uh, you can keep throwing money at this. It seems to be a, it's more of a pandemic situation rather than a political situation. So while the pandemic still rages on, and as we're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel, you don't throw money at it before you actually see that light. Now, just add my original point is just that yeah. our economy, in my mind at least, you could correct me, is, is being a lot better than most places in the world. We haven't had the shutdowns like everybody else. Sure, we've had measures that have been uh, onious on uh, on us, but for the most part, we've actually been quite well uh, with our economy compared to everyone else. Thank you, Chris, for the call. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about the lockdown in British Columbia, it wasn't really much of a lockdown when you compare it to other states or provinces. I mean, the retail sector is largely open, the restaurants have been open, uh, bars are open. So yeah, most of the stuff is, has stayed open. You're right about that. The economy is bouncing back. But like I said, you got to drill down a bit on those numbers. Most of those jobs that came out this morning were part-time jobs. Most of them were public sector jobs. We still need a big private sector recovery. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this idea in British Columbia to go to permanent daylight saving time. Now this Sunday is when we spring ahead, right? We move the clocks ahead. 
one hour. Now, remember when we were told that at some point we're just going to stop doing that and we would keep the clocks the same all year round? That was back in 2019. The B.C. government passed legislation to allow permanent daylight savings time. Now, they did a consultation with British Columbians. It was huge. They had like 200,000 people in the province supported this idea. Let's go to permanent daylight time. Now, let's go back in the in the way back machine here and have a listen to what was said at the time. Now, here's Premier John Horgan uh, talking about this back in March 2019. We can act in unison, the four jurisdictions, make the case that we need to either stay with daylight saving time or stay with Pacific Standard Time and then do it together. Okay, so I'm making the case there to coordinate with st- uh, southern states across the border, like California, Washington State. We all do this together. Here he is uh, talking about permanent daylight time. Have a listen. Uh, the likelihood of a congressional approval of this is even less today than it was uh, in the fall. Uh, we're in an election year in the United States, but we'll be uh, springing forward uh, on March 8th, and uh, we'll have some time through the spring and into the summer to decide whether we're going to fall back. That was last uh, last spring when we, we sprang ahead and then we fall back again. Like, are we ever going to go to this permanent daylight time? And... Is it really such a bright idea? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Miriam Judah. She's a research manager at the University of BC, specializing in circadian rhythms. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Miriam, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's nice. It's great to talk to you about this because I find it fascinating and I know a lot of people are interested in it. So this Sunday, it is spring forward. So we move the clocks ahead by one hour, we're going to lose an hour's sleep this weekend, right? So that's when we move to daylight time, right? Yes. Yeah, so right. right now we're under standard time. Right. Uh, standard time is the time that is aligned to sun time. So when it's noon, that is when the sun is highest in the sky. And on Sunday, we will be transitioning to daylight saving time, which is a time that was introduced 100 years ago. Right. And this idea that British Columbia should move to permanent daylight time, like we move ahead by an hour this Sunday and then you never change the clocks ever again. We just keep permanent daylight time. This is this is the idea that's favored by the government. But I know you think it's not that good. It's not a very good idea, right? Yeah. Well, let me rephrase what actually the poll was about. Okay. Um, so what would you think British Columbians would have said if the BC government had put forward a poll that would have said um, from October to March every year, we will, uh, we will start school and work an hour earlier? Do yeah. you think that <laughs> the majority of British Columbians would have agreed to that, would have, would have voted in favor of this? I don't think so. But the sad truth is, is that most British Canadians voted exactly for that when they voted for permanent daylight saving time. Because yeah. what daylight saving time does is that it, uh, it moves our social schedules an hour earlier. So we now have to go to work an hour earlier. We have to go to school an hour earlier. Our alarm clock wakes us up an hour earlier. And uh, a lot of people have issues with that because simply because we have a circadian clock. And our circadian clock doesn't just simply adjust um, to us getting up an hour earlier. Uh, So I think a lot of people feel frustrated about the time change and um, want to get rid of the time change. Uh, But I think where a lot of people uh, are wrong is that they believe that it is uh, is arbitrary which time zone we go on. And it would be true, it would be arbitrary if we had no circadian clock. But we do have a circadian clock, and the circadian clock is aligned to sun time, not to our yeah. social schedule. Right. So, so when we move, yeah. So, so that means that, like, when we go to daylight time in the summer, it, it's usually a, a pretty pleasant thing for a lot of people. But then we got to think about if if we go on permanent daylight time, well, then we get back into the fall and winter later in the year. And then suddenly that means people will be waking up and going to work and kids will be going to school and it will still be dark out, right? Exactly, yeah. So what what we do see is that over the year, our circadian rhythms do change. So in the summer months, our circadian rhythms are earlier. So most of us are more early birds in the summer months as opposed to the winter months. And the reason for that 
is because we get more morning light exposure in the summer months than in the winter yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, now, in the winter months, most of us are later because we're just getting less uh, morning light exposure. If we had year-round daylight saving time, what would happen is that because we have to get up earlier and the sunrise might be after we get up, so for example in Vancouver, in December, under year-round daylight saving time, the sunrise won't happen until 9.08. In some places in British Columbia, it will be like 10.30 a.m. when the sunrise happens. So most of us... Yeah, depending, like if you're in northern British Columbia, right? Yeah, and also yeah. depending on where you are, east and west of, of a time zone, right? Yeah. Uh, so, what, so what kind of what kind of impact does that have on people? Like, if suddenly you know we're getting up and we're getting ready to go to school or work, and it's still dark outside, like you talk about the circadian rhythms of our body, can you sort of put that into sort of layman's language? Like, what what does that what does that mean? Okay, so for our circadian clock to be properly functioning, we need um, a light dark cycle. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, when yeah. we move our social schedules an hour earlier, what happens is that we are reducing the light exposure we're getting in the morning. Many people won't even get any light exposure in the winter months in the morning. However, we're now getting more light exposure in the evening, which might seem like a great thing because we can golf or we can maybe do more activities after work. However, having this distorted, this misaligned light-dark cycle, what it does is that it delays our circadian rhythm, so it makes us more night out. And this is particularly a yeah. problem in the winter months, where it will be very difficult to get any light exposure in the morning under daylight saving time. What? And so we will be more night out, but worse so, we will now be forced to get up a whole hour earlier than under standard time. So we're night out that now have an alarm clock that wakes us up an hour earlier. Right. And what is, what is the potential impact of that on, on people's health? Like, can people, can that cause like depression or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, we call this misalignment, we call it social jet lag. And, you know, it might seem like, well, an hour doesn't mean a lot. But yeah. actually, when you look at population statistics, this one hour does predict health problems. So just simply within a time zone, one time zone, you see differences between east and west. You see people who live west, they have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of um, of depression, higher rates of diabetes, and also higher rates of car traffic accidents. So it's, it's interesting that you see these effects even within a single time zone. And what is the difference between the time zone is that we're all... We're all in the same social schedule because we're all in the same time zone, right? Yeah. But the difference is that there is a difference between the sunrise and the sunset between east and west. So people who live west of a time zone, they're just more misaligned. So if you, for example, okay. imagine if, if everybody were to get up at 7 a.m. in the morning, 7 a.m. is much earlier physiologically speaking for somebody who lives west of a time zone as opposed to somebody who lives east of a time zone. So we okay. see these effects directly on, 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 on health. Okay. The, do you therefore think that we should stick with the system we've got and continue changing the clocks twice a year, fall back, spring forward? Or if we're going to go to a permanent system, maybe we should go to permanent standard time instead of permanent daylight time. Absolutely. So uh, circadian rhythm researchers have written position papers uh, about uh, really advocating to move to permanent standard time. So it makes no sense to have a time change. Uh, But if we are to stop the time change, it would be really much better for our health and our sleep to be on standard time. So if we were on, on permanent standard time, we would really be getting much more light exposure in the morning month, in the, right. in the morning, all over the year. So we would expect that um, we would actually see improvements in sleep and in health if we were to move to permanent standard time. Okay, fascinating issue. I appreciate your input on it, and we we'll are continue to follow it very closely. We'll see what happens when we move to daylight saving time this week this weekend and if we move we, if we uh, fall back later in the year miriam thank you for coming on once again thank you very much for having me mike 
All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with pets and condos. Can you have a dog or a cat if you live in a condo? Well, it depends on your strata bylaws, right? What if you're a renter? Can a landlord evict you if you have a cat? Here's the real bottom line. Should you have the right to have a pet in a condo or a rental home? Let's discuss now with my guest, Rebecca Bretter. She's an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Rebecca, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you again. So let's let's talk about pets and condos first of all. So what are the yeah. what are the rules and the laws here in British Columbia? Can you have a pet in a condo? Uh, yes, you certainly can have a pet in a condo, um, but the, the condos also have the right. At least I think we are. Uh, it, it, there's kind of an assumption that condos are allowed prohibiting pets. So yeah. right now it hasn't been seriously challenged at the Supreme Court level. So now we're all working under the legal assumption that condominiums actually have the right to prohibit pets, unfortunately, which is just crazy if you ask me. I think people should definitely have the right to have a companion animal, the reality is is that the majority of companion animal guardians are responsible. They're good people who take care of their animals. Yes, you're going to have the, the few bad apples that, that unfortunately kind of spoil it for the rest of us. But I, I, I know that people are going to say, well, I should have the right to live in a pet-free building. I'm, I'm really allergic to animals, to cats or dogs. And I don't want to downplay that. Um, I, I think some people really do have a serious allergic condition to some animals. But even with that, I really don't think that should prevent entire buildings from being pet free. And especially nowadays with the technology that's out there to and the buildings that are being built with proper ventilation and all that. It's just completely unfair. And especially in this city, this crazy expensive city that we live in, I mean, it's, I don't know how many calls I get with people or just people reaching out to me saying how their animal is their family. They don't have other family. Someone just reached out to me this morning on social media and said, my, my dog is my family. I don't, I'm new to the city. I don't have friends here yet. I don't have family here. And it is so hard to find a rental place where I can be with my dog. Right. I've talked to some people in similar situations. So it's difficult to find, like if you're trying to rent a place, it's difficult to find a landlord who may allow you to have a pet. It can be done, but you, it, it takes some work. As for a condo, I guess it, I guess it would, it varies from strata to strata and, and the bylaws they have in place. Like I've heard some places, some stratas will say, yes, you're allowed to have a pet. Um, but the pet must be under a certain size. For, yeah, for which example. is also so ridiculous. It's so arbitrary. I had a case, um, actually, I had a couple of these. Uh, they settled, so unfortunately, we don't have a written decision in court that I could turn you to. But um, there's this one, this is probably one of my funniest ones, where it's a condo in Yale Town. And they had a weight restriction. And at the time when my client had his dog, got his dog, the the dog met the weight restrictions. But I guess after a few years, he had a bit too many doggy treats and got a little bit too fat. And someone complained about the dog, probably really because they just didn't like my client more so than the dog. But either way, the strata tried to have my client, quote unquote, remove his animal and it's just a completely arbitrary bylaw. So that's what people, and we ended up settling that the dog is, like, is, is with my client. But what people how much, have to, how much yeah. was the dog, how much was the dog overweight? Like how many pounds overweight? I, I think about 10 pounds. 10 okay. Pounds so they tried, so. so they tried to remove this, this tenant because the, or the strata, the, the occupant the strata, of this, yeah. the strata, because the dog was 10, was over, 10 pounds <laughs> overweight. Yeah, okay. exactly. There was another one where the dog grew a, a, a little bit, literally a few inches higher than what the strata bylaws allowed. Yes. And and this also was in Yaletown. I don't know what's going on in Yaletown. But, um, and again, we settled. The strata realized, I mean, I fought really hard telling them, your strata bylaws suck. They are arbitrary. You can't, you know, we're talking about an animal, not a piece of furniture. But... but- but on the other hand, like you mentioned that some people may be allergic, maybe they don't want to get into an elevator if there's been a cat or a dog in there. Some people, I yeah. think, have got legitimate legitimate fears uh, of dogs. Like I, I know a guy whose son was was deathly afraid of dogs, and we had to be real careful around around this kid because the kid was 
the kid had a terrible phobia about dogs. Like, so if you have a situation like that, shouldn't people in that situation have, have the option to seek out a pet, fr- a pet free place to live? No, honestly, no, I don't. I mean, and it's not to diminish their concerns or their feelings. And I acknowledge that people have those concerns, but that shouldn't apply to the entire building, especially in the city. You know, often the the two main excuses I hear about um, about not uh, keeping the law as it is, basically allowing the prohibition of pets, is that one, the allergy excuse, and two, is that animals could cause damage. So when it comes to allergies, I mean, I already said, I think there are ways to go about it. And, and realistically, cats, especially cats, they stay in condominiums, they stay within the units. They don't roam around in, in the hallways. I mean, I guess sometimes that's possible, but there are ways to limit that. Yeah. And but two with damage, uh, kids. Let me just say, and I'm a mom, so don't start accusing me that oh I don't understand kids. Uh, kids cause more damage to places than pets do. I'm a landlord. Well, I own a townhouse. Yeah. I've been my, my husband and I have been pet friendly landlords since 2009 when we bought it yeah. and started renting it out. And I could tell you from my experience, and I know others will probably feel the same, the main damage that I have seen to our unit, not from the dogs and cats that have lived there, but from well, kids. wouldn't it depend, though, on the dog or cat? I mean, I once had a dog when it was a puppy used to chew everything. And actually, in our house, I can still see evidence of the chewing and gnawing from our dog when it was, was a puppy. That's improved dramatically. Or you might have a dog that is not house-trained. And is pooping and peeing yeah. in, in a unit yeah. and cause so like I've talked to landlords who tell me that they've had a lot of damage from their tenants caused by pets. Yeah, of course. I'm not going to say no. That never happens. Of course it does. But we have to look at realistically what happens the majority of the time. So are we going to have this draconian law still exist here for the small number of incidents that relatively happen? And yeah, I get that uh, that landlords will say, especially like landlords in my position where it's not like this big company, but we see our, our property as an investment to a certain extent, that they should have the right to protect their investment. They invested, you know, this could be their retirement income. I get it. I'm in yeah. that boat too. But at the same time, especially in this city, I really wholeheartedly believe that this prohibition of, of um, ban on, or, or sorry, allowing a ban on pets yeah. should just not exist. There so, are okay, so you think that don't allow that. So you think there should be no ban? There should be a province-wide law that says if you are a renter, if you own a condo unit, you're, you're living in any kind of multi-unit dwelling, that you should be allowed to have a pet, period, full stop. Like your landlord can't stop Absolutely. you, your strata can't stop you. Absolutely. But on that note, uh, the strata could always stop you because really what this all comes down to is whether the way you're using your units where you live is having a bad effect on the use and enjoyment of, of another resident's use and enjoyment of their property. So if your animal, for example, is interfering unreasonably with your neighbors or whatever, with someone else in in the building's use and enjoyment of of the property, Stratus would still have the right to tell the person, hey, either your dog moves out or you move out with the dog. So it's not like you wouldn't be able to evict people for having aggressive dogs or, you know, problem animals. Okay, what about someone who refuses to pick up after their dog? I mean, I've heard nightmare stories about that, Ooh. too. I mean, if your dog is pooping all over the property and you're not doing anything, come on, you got to go. Yeah, you well, agree? that guy, that person is just an a-hole for doing that well, because well, yeah. he just, yeah, he just should, shouldn't be doing that and Happy. it ruins it for everyone. But I don't know, is that a basis for getting rid of the animal? Eh, or slap him or her with some major fines for for disturbing okay. common property. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about pets and condos and apartments with my guest, Rebecca Bretter. Tons of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Steve in the West End. Hey, Steve. Hey, good morning. Um, I have to disagree with your guest. Um, there's been properties that I've tried to buy uh, to live in, and I didn't meet a certain age restriction. Uh, I couldn't rent it out, um, and therefore I couldn't buy. That was just the rules that I knew about first first, and could choose to, you know, 
basically that uh, deterred me to buy or not. Um, yeah. I also look at it as I could temporarily rent my place out if I did find a place that I could uh, purchase and then rent out. But it, it's a temporary situation. I may decide to live in it uh, later. And I, I think it's perfectly fine to have certain rules. If I go to a business, they may choose not to serve me uh, for basic rules that they have at that business. And if I don't like those rules, I can choose not to patronize the business okay. and okay, go somewhere Re- else. Okay, Rebecca, what do you say to that? Yeah, no, I get that. But the reality is, is that it's so hard to find pet-friendly housing in the city. It's literally becoming almost impossible for people who want to live with their companion animals to find rental housing. Just ask the SPCA how many animals they get literally thousands a year abandoned because of that. And and so it, and it, and fundamentally, this comes down to uh, us recognizing that yeah, I, I get their rules, but the companion animals are family. They really okay. are. Okay, Ma- uh, Marianne in Maple Ridge. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a lot of experience with this. Okay. I used to manage about ten large rental buildings, and at the time I took over management for this uh, company, we didn't allow pets, and I talked to them about you know allowing pets. And they agreed. So we allowed pets in all of the units, one dog or one cat. We yeah. set up dog stations with bags and stuff to uh, give you know the tenants you know, no excuse not to pick up after their pets. And it was incredibly successful. We had mm. so few problems. I will say, though, that cats tend to be more of a problem because they do tend to pee. So if we had any damage, it was always due to cats. The only thing I'd like to see is maybe a bit more um, a higher damage deposit required. As for condos, no, I don't think you should be restricting homeowners from having pets or rentals, quite frankly. I, I think that it violates their rights as homeowners. Okay. But definitely rental units should allow pets. Okay, Marianne, thank you for that. Okay, there was a vote in favor of pets from someone mm-hmm. with a lot of experience. Let's go to John and Tawasin. Hey, John. Hey, good morning. Uh, you know, I, I agree with your guests. And, you know, many jurisdictions around the world have um, concluded that it's oppressive to um, prohibit people from owning uh, dogs. You know, it's, it's a basic human right. It goes back thousands of years, people owning dogs and pets. And to deny people that right, I think it's, I, I believe it's oppressive as well. And I think BC strata laws needed to be updated, not only in regards to dogs, but to other uh, rules and regulations that okay. are also impressive, oppressive. Okay, John, thank you for that. Rebecca, what are the, what are the rules in some other jurisdictions? Uh, well, Ontario, uh, as an example, uh, has an outright prohibition on banning pets in rental agreements. With condos, wow. it's a little bit different. Uh, my understanding is that condos are, are still allowed to ban pets um, if their bylaws allow for that, but there's a lot of room to argue okay. that the bylaw okay. may be arbitrary. Okay, we just got a minute left. Jeremy and Burnaby. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, yeah, I agree with your uh, guest as well. I used to live uh, in a condo. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. Yeah, keep going. Uh, I used to use, uh, live in a condo as well. Fortunately, I was able to buy a house, and we don't have to get rid of our pets. But they had a size restriction, and I just don't agree with it. And being in a pandemic, people that live by themselves, if they were able to get a pet, it might be good for their uh, mental health getting through this bad time that we've uh, been having this last year. So yeah, I, I think don't a lot. Think, uh, I think a lot of people are agreeing with you on that last point, uh, given the uh, the surge we've seen in people getting pets and and adopting pets as well. Rebecca, we got way more calls we can get to here, mm-hmm. um, so we'll just have to have you back and we'll we'll talk more about it. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much. All right, welcome back to the show. We've got an awesome final hour of the show today, including at the bottom of this hour, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, will be my guest. And we'll talk about Canada's relations with China, very timely with Chinese state media reporting yesterday that the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, of course, the two Canadians detained in China, soon will face trial in China for espionage. Very troubling development. I also want to get Bob Ray's take on the military coup in Myanmar. There's been a lot of drama at the United Nations on that, too. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. He'll be my guest at the bottom of this hour. So make sure you stick around for that. First, though, it's the great wealth tax debate and a brand new report out from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives making the case 
for a wealth tax in Canada. Yeah, tax the rich. You could raise 10 billion bucks a year here if you did that. All right, let's discuss now. Let's get it on. We got both sides of it here for you. Jasmine Moulton on the line, Ontario Director from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Jasmine, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Also on the line, Jim Stanford. He's an economist with the Center for Future Work in Vancouver. Jim, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Hello, Jasmine. Okay. Hi. Thank you. Thank you to both of you being here again. Jimmy, let me, Jim, let me go to you first. A wealth tax. Do you like this idea? Well, I think it could make a contribution to the, the rebuilding uh, that's going to be required after the pandemic. Uh, the proposal here would impose a 1% tax on anyone's wealth above $20 million. So most right. of us uh, aren't going to get hit by that, Mike. I don't know if you've got $20 million sitting around. I don't. I wish. I wish. Uh, so no. It's really targeting a, a very small group of very wealthy Canadians. And we know they've gotten wealthier during the pandemic. This is, in a way, the most infuriating thing is that the rich were already rich, and they got even richer during the pandemic because of the stock market bubble and everything else. So let's have them pay a little bit more towards the reconstruction that's going to be required. Okay, Jasmine, what do you say to that? Like, if you're sitting on 20 million bucks, if you're that wealthy, uh, maybe should you think the government should whack them with a tax? Why not? Well, I got to say, Mike, that sounds very familiar because when income taxes were introduced, we were also told that those would only affect the top 1%. But now anybody who takes a paycheck pretty well pays income taxes. So I think that we can expect that the way they get these things passed is by saying, oh, don't worry, it will be someone else paying for the pandemic. And then before you know it, everybody's impacted. And in fact, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation released a report on wealth taxes showing that actually a lot of farmers would be uh, slapped with this tax. Oh. So it's not a good, uh, it's by must, no means a silver bullet. Rich farmers. must be pretty rich farmers. Well, sure when you look I'm... at the cost of acreage in southwestern Ontario, for example, yeah, some of the some acreage can be approaching $30,000 for one acre of farmland. If uh, Jim, I'm not sure uh, you've ever driven a combine, but if you look at the prices of those, your assets add up pretty darn quickly. And yes, there would be a yeah, lot well, of they're, they're all They're all set up as corporations, so they've got assets and liabilities, and that's not going to translate into a Joe Blow farmer paying uh, a wealth tax. It's, it's people who've got $20 million dollars in their personal assets, and we could also yeah. refine how those are uh, defined. So to exclude your own home and uh, your small business and, and so on. So there's only 25,000 people who would pay this tax, and I can assure you uh, there are not many farmers in that group. But is it the Jim, thin... Respectfully, I think yeah. you're showing how little you know about wealth taxes and business valuation and Canadian taxation by saying that a business would not be uh, subject to the wealth taxes. A business and its assets and its value, which are separate, would absolutely 100% be subjected to a wealth tax in this country. If the business had net value of greater than $20 million and the individual owned the whole business, then yes, they would be. But that does not describe most farms, Jasmine. So I'm quite up on this. Thank you very much. Okay, Jasmine, let me ask you this. And the point that you made earlier that, you know, when they brought in income tax, they said it would only apply to the top wage earners and then it expanded later. So if they did bring in a wealth tax in Canada for people who have $20 million worth of wealth, um, which obviously would rule out the vast majority of people listening right now, you're saying that what? That it could, that might sound okay, but it's the thin edge of the wedge. Like maybe they start to expand the eligibility on that later. Well, absolutely, they would. We've already seen that with income tax. But let me tell you, Mike, if you knew how many billionaires there are in Canada, there's just over 40. And if the government confiscated the entirety of their wealth, it wouldn't even come close to covering the $1 trillion debt tab that Justin Trudeau and many of his predecessors have uh, worked up in this country. And so this new report that's out, the CCPA report, says that a wealth tax might generate uh, $19 billion dollars. Well, the government itself says it will only generate about $5.6 billion, but okay, let's go with the rosy picture. I mean, who needs the Disney Channel when you have fairy tales like this to look at? So let's pretend that the wealth tax will generate $19.4 billion. That would pay for approximately 10 days of Justin Trudeau spending right now. Does that sound like it's going to fix any sort of financial problem he's digging mm. us into? Okay, Jim Stanford. Well, I, I, nobody says it will fix it. It just makes a contribution. So I, I, the, the core estimate in the report is $10 billion. That's for a 1% tax above uh, wealth holdings of $20 million. So $10 okay, so billion dollars doesn't eliminate now. the deficit. Certainly not. And 
If we got rid of income tax, as Jasmine is suggesting, then I can assure you that the deficit will get an awful lot bigger. So this is just a question of uh, doing the incremental things that are going to be required. We have a big deficit. There's a reason for it. It isn't Justin Trudeau's personal spending proclivity. It's the fact that this whole country has been through a catastrophe and government has done what it has to do in order to support us. And a little bit of the repair can be undertaken by people who've profited very nicely during this pandemic. It's a a basic degree of fairness that we're talking about here. This is very generous of Jim to describe Justin Trudeau's spending is all pandemic related, because if we look at corporate welfare, him and Doug Ford just gave half a billion dollars to the Ford Motor Company. This is a company that ranks 12th on the Fortune 500 list. That has nothing to do with the pandemic. What about sole sourced contracts to SNC-Lavalin in the hundreds of millions of dollars? Or the same day he raised the carbon tax on farmers again and the rest of Canadians, he also gave politicians in the House of Commons a multi-thousand dollar raise, bureaucrats across the public service, uh, billions of dollars worth of raises this year. Uh, It's very generous of him to assume that a wealth tax would go to any sort of positive social program. Jasmine, also, I think, keep in mind that if you take a look at how much money has been blown out the door here during this pandemic, I mean, we're looking at an accumulated debt in the country of approaching a trillion dollars, which is just uh, unbelievable, and then billions of dollars in, in deficits piled up. And it, it, the government has also indicated they're going to keep on spending. It, it's almost like we're in kind of a permanent spend mode here, and the government talking with $300 billion in stimulus spending here over the next few years, even after the pandemic is over. So when you take a look at the spending uh, platform here and promises by this government, Jasmine, like, do you think that what what is your sort of political uh, sensibility tell you here in this government? Because I'm wondering if they're, if they're looking seriously at a wealth tax or a home equity tax or a, or an inheritance tax. Do you think the government is looking seriously at a big, a big tax increases? I absolutely do. And we've already seen that his carbon tax, which he promised after the last election, before the last election, he said he wouldn't raise it past $50 a ton. Now he's raising it by close to 500%, up to $170 a ton. He's introduced Netflix taxes. He's raised alcohol taxes. All of these, he's raised uh, payroll taxes as well. All of this during the pandemic when Justin Trudeau promised that he wouldn't raise taxes on Canadians. So we cannot trust this government. Okay, Jim, you think they should raise taxes, though, right? Well, I think that the wealth tax could make a contribution, but we're not going to tax our way out of this recession that we're in. So no no one is saying that we should increase taxes to offset the deficit. The way to offset and reduce the deficit is going to be to put Canadians back to work. And uh, we can continue to run deficits uh, in future years, and other countries have proven that, and we, we showed that in our past. We finished World War II, Mike, with a debt that was much, much bigger than the debt that we have today. And we didn't say, oh, we can't fight the Nazis because it might lead to a deficit. And then when the war was over, uh, we didn't try to balance the budget by cutting everything. In fact, governments continued to spend and continued to run deficits in most years. What we did do was we put people back to work, grew the economy, raised revenues, and paid down the deficit okay, that ja- way. And that's that sort of strategy that's going to be required now, not any kind of austerity. Jasmine, real quick, and then we'll take some calls here, too. The only thing that I think Jim and I can agree on in this call is that we can't tax our way out of this. And that's precisely what I'm arguing today is that Justin Trudeau needs to get his own careless spending under control instead of raising taxes on Canadians. Okay, guys, careless here's what spending, we'll... Like the CERB that helped millions of Canadians survive this pandemic. That's uh, not okay. careless at all. That was very, very well, well done. Okay, I already I'll ju- listed corporate welfare as an example. There are many areas where Justin Trudeau is throwing our money down the drain. All right, welcome back to the show. It's the Great Wealth Tax Debate. Jasmine Moulton, Jim Stanford, your calls to them, 604-280-9898 is the number to call, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Daryl in Coquitlam. Hey, Daryl. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Mike. I'd like to ask you just uh, just a very quick couple of questions. One, in Tax the Rich, Tax the Super Rich, there's not enough of them in Canada to make a difference. This is not the United States. Secondly, I'd like your guest's opinion on the deficit spending of the federal government in comparison to our G7 peers and our jet-to-GDP ratio. I know Japan is running at about 224%. Italy is way up there. And and about getting people working, and I think that is the way that we're going to reduce the debt by putting more people in the workforce to pay taxes while they're working. Okay. 
Okay, let me go to Jim on that. Jim, what do you think about that? He says there's not enough rich people around to make a difference if you bring in a wealth tax anyway. Well, there's 25,000 Canadians who own more than $20 million in net wealth, so that's 0.2% of the population. So that isn't a lot of people, but uh, just 1% of their wealth makes a significant contribution. So I won't for a minute say that this solves the problem, not at all. And I agree with Daryl uh, that the way to solve the problem is to get the economy going and put people back to work. And that is going to involve uh, continued government spending and government deficits for some years to come. Canada's debt as a share of GDP is actually the second lowest uh, of any of the G7 countries. Uh, Germany is the only country with a smaller debt, and we're like a third of the size of Japan's debt. So the the idea that there's a debt crisis around the corner just uh, isn't isn't credible. Jasmine? So I think Jim misunderstood what the caller was saying. In terms of the deficit compared to GDP, yes, Canada has had the largest spending response in re- to COVID-19 uh, of our G7 counterparts, but we've had the worst outcomes in terms of uh, economic performance, uh, in terms of un- our unemployment rate. So I think what he's making a great point is that government spending does not equal economic growth because the government can never spend money as effectively as taxpayers, business owners, actual job creators themselves. And I would know I have owned a business uh, for a number of years and employed uh, many, many people. And so I know that I can spend government far more efficiently in terms of economic growth than the government can. What, what do you say to that, Jim? Well, in terms of the outcomes, I, I mean, you know, if we uh, very few Canadians would look to the United States, which did not spend as much proportionate to GDP as we did, and say they did it better. Uh, I, I think most Canadians are very glad that we did it the way we did, and uh, okay. the government's response was was very important, and, and we've got room to provide those uh, responses. So, okay, uh, government did the right thing. Let's go to Paul on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Paul. Hi, Mike. Yeah, so this question's for either one. I just say I'm against taxing the wealth because a lot of these wealthy people, if not the majority of them, give a lot of money to charities and contribute a ton of money. Like Jim Patterson's giving $75 million. You keep on taxing the wealth, they're going to pull out and look for other places to invest. And um, okay. that's my take on that. Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, uh, the charity and donations and so on are certainly welcome, but they aren't a replacement for making what I would say is a a required contribution to the social fabric of society. And I think if they're genuinely charitable, as opposed to doing it for PR reasons, they will continue to give charity and they can still pay the 1% a year, very, very little, uh, of these large fortunes that they have. Okay, let's get another call on here. Uh, Lori in Langley. Hi, Lori. Oh, hi. I just wanted to call and say after hearing this, I think that this is just a sanctioned robbery of people who have money, and it's ridiculous. You don't know the stories of these families, the sacrifices they made to get to that bracket, and just because you have money doesn't mean you have things simply. You have to work at a lot of other things. So I just, I wish the stupidity around that would just put the brakes on and um, think of other things. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Laurie, thank you for calling. Jasmine, do you think if they did bring in a tax, a, a, a wealth tax on the wealthy, that it would have any kind of repercussions for the Canadian economy? Like, could you drive uh, head offices out of the country or, or risk takers or entrepreneurs out of Canada and have an impact on employment? Your thoughts? Well, thankfully, we can look. We don't have to wonder what a wealth tax would do in Canada. We can look to the European countries who have tried it as an example, and the vast majority of them have abandoned it because... Uh, largely due to this exodus of capital idea. Rich people leave the country. Uh, A study from New World World Wealth Forum found that 42,000 millionaires fled from France while it had a wealth tax. That's why they're getting rid of them, because once the wealthy people leave, and let me remind all of your listeners, they pay the lion's share of taxes in Canada. The top 1% of earners pay more than 20% of income taxes in Canada. When they leave, then the rest of us, the middle class, the lower, the people who have less money, the lower income people, end up with a higher tax burden. We don't okay. want rich people leaving. Okay, we got 30 seconds. Jim, how do you respond? Well, Switzerland still has a wealth tax, and the last time I checked, Mike, there's a few rich people still there. So, again, I think some of this fear-mongering is, uh, is just a bit extreme.